Testing, testing. It's on. One, two, one, two. Microphone checker. Microphone wrecker. Microphone picker, picker. <laughs> Alright, let's give this a shot. What is life? What does it mean to heal? I'm a human. Hello, hello? Anybody there? Why are we here? What does this mean? Let's figure it out together. That's fun. Just to come play. Play in the podverse. What are we doing? This is the Turning of the Bones podcast. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Turning of the Bones podcast. I'm your host, Colby Marie. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope that this day finds you well, whether you're listening to this in your car or on a walk, sitting in your home having some tea. I hope that the surroundings you've chosen are pleasant and peaceful and conducive to sitting down and having a little chat, a little listen, a little talk, because that's what we do here on the Turning of the Bones podcast. We just pick a topic and we, we see what we can flush out about it. It is a delightful day here in Denver, Colorado. The sun is shining. It's a little bit warmer. It has been an absolutely, what, how would I describe this? What's the word I'm looking for here? It has been a slog. The spring here has been a slog. The weather has been up and down, hot and cold, sustained winds, and I'm not going to lie, I'm a little drowsy today. I've noticed that uh, the mammal in me is is really slowly coming out of this winter, this hibernation, this little dormant period we've had for the last several months, the darkness, uh, the sedentary lifestyle, and I'm, I'm finding it finding it challenging to get into a good flow. I don't know about y'all, but the the weather this time of year, I notice in my body, I'll have a day of what seems like exceptional energy and focus. Just apply myself to what I'm doing, working out, playing in the podcast, getting work done, to kind of feel alive. And then the next day, it's like I'm, I'm coming out of the cave again and I can barely open my eyes. I'm having a, a bit of one of those today, so bear with me. I also have some allergies, which are creating a bit of brain fog, so I'm hoping that I can get through this content. I, I hope this spring is treating you well. Lots of people I talk to are having allergies, having a hard time waking up. You know, our pandemic brain fog is still here. There's so many things going on. Before I sat down to record today, I, I went to do some push-ups to <clears throat> try and get the blood flow into my brain so that I would have access to the information I need for this podcast, the anecdotal stories and such. And uh, at some point after my first round of push-ups, I just laid down on the floor and my dog came over and gave me a nice little snuggle. And it was delightful. I think she had the right idea. She was like, why don't we go back to bed? I don't know if y'all have pets, but they are just wonderful. I just laid there for a little while, gave her some pets. It was a good reminder that, you know, I'm a mammal too. Seasons affect me. The weather, my energy levels. 
go easy on myself. I'm not always going to be able to maintain 100% focus. That's uh, that's kind of a ridiculous myth of our modern society and capitalism is that we can kind of just maintain this incessantly productive mode of being. And so I mentioned in last week's podcast that I might do a series on attention and ADHD and ADD. And here it is. That's we're going to jump into that and the goal of this is really just to flush out some ideas uh did some research on the history treatments uh some anecdotal stories i was diagnosed with adhd in third grade which uh i'll shine a little bit more light on later but i just i think that you know when i'm scrolling online or when i look around it's like there's still a million and one solutions to this you know neuroscientists and cognitive neuroscientists are really exploring this pretty intensely it's a huge field of neuroscience so they're trying to get some mechanistic data for what's going on in our brains Uh, there's tons of work around behavioral stuff and I wanted to give this little preamble that From what I found, there's about, and this kind of corresponds. So when I was teaching in high school, I noticed that I didn't think that as many people had ADHD as as were diagnosed or thought they did. You know, adults said they had it. Every student had it. I mean, it was like everybody has ADHD. And so when something that's prevalent, it it makes me a little suspicious. Um, And I've found in my life in my journey and my relationship to my brain and focus and attention that a lot of the shifts that I needed to make were actually behavioral. And I actually think that my diagnosis and uh, the treatment for my ADHD was a little off base in the 80s, not due to, you know, any kind of maliciousness, just, uh, just a straight up ignorance. There was a lack of knowledge at that time around what was going on. And so I do think that a lot of uh, what people experience, you know, the overstimulation we have with social technology and social media and the news cycle, I think a lot of that can be mitigated with behavioral changes. There is, however, um, there are cases in which, you know, the depression associated with ADHD, that people actually do need medication. And when I did this research for this podcast, about 10% of the population uh, has clinically diagnosable ADHD. And so I'm not a huge fan of medication. Um, I am when people need it to scaffold to learn the behavioral supports, when things have kind of gotten too far out of balance for them to be able to maintain focus or regulate their emotions or experiencing significant depression, anxiety. I do think that medications, uh, you know, use behavioral approaches whenever it's safe. Um, And having a team, psychologist, psychiatrist, therapist, really get in there and assess you is is really key if you think that you're struggling with this. it's just hard to focus right now. I mean, there's just so much visual auditory stimulus just sitting in my apartment. There's so much visual stimuli in here, things that I could look at. There's sounds going on out in the neighborhood. There's my phone, 
that can I can pick up anytime I want and get a little dopamine hit from Facebook or Instagram. Uh, there's work, there's taxes, there's relationships. Uh, there's just so much, and it's like uh, we only have so much capacity. And so the point of this is really just to kind of take a look at it, <clears throat> look at it historically, talk about it a bit. And I really do believe that, you know, any science or as we develop understandings of things, like there are periods of time, you know, you can forgive somebody for being ignorant. It's hard. It's harder to forgive somebody for being foolish, for uh, doing things that they know not to be true. <clears throat> and so uh, when I talk about ADHD historically, you know, there's just a certain amount of ignorance. There's just shit we didn't know. And we continue to refine our understandings of these things. And I think an interesting thing about the time we're living in is you have access to so many sources now. Like I went into so many medical journals and read so much this week about ADHD. There's just so much new information about about it. But here we go. We're going to jump into just this, this historical thing because it's not... It's not as modern as we think. So way, 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 way back in the day, there was a gentleman named Alexander Crichton. And I want to also virtue signal here. This is a very Western, scientific, modern medicine, industrialized Western account of ADHD. And so Alexander Crichton uh, was born in 1763 and lived until 1865. He was a doctor. Uh, in Europe. He traveled all around. He did a lot of his schooling in Paris around this time, and he was a part of the Royal College of Physicians. He actually ended up being, uh, at a young age, recruited to be the physician for Tsar Alexander I of Russia, who, interestingly enough, became the Tsar of Russia at 23. <clears throat> and can you believe that? running a whole country at 23. Like you don't even have a full frontal lobe. Uh, just some of those historical accounts of those leaders and the positions they were put in at young ages are just absolutely mind blowing to me. You could do a whole podcast on that. Can you imagine being in charge of Russia during the Napoleonic Wars at 23? It may have been a little bit older during the Napoleonic Wars, but basically Alexander Crichton <clears throat> became uh, the physician Alexander and while he was there he became really obsessed with uh, what was labeled at the time derangement and insanity so mental health issues and he kind of narrowed his focus later on in his career to what had still not been labeled ADHD but it was kind of the first uh, documented scientific examinations of ADHD and he labeled this this insanity or this derangement is what it was called at the time the incapacity of attending with the necessary degree of consistency to any one object almost always arises from the unnatural or morbid sensibility of the nerves by which means this faculty is incessantly withdrawn from one impression to the other and may be either born with a person or may be the effect of an accidental disease so what he was observing was uh, certain people were hyper-stimulated by their senses. Like, their attention was grabbed pretty frequently by 
their senses. So an example of this is uh, you could be attending to something. So you have like one cone of attention. You're reading a book and your primary focus is on what you're reading. But all of a sudden you hear a car crash outside. All of your senses turn towards the car crash. And that's kind of an involuntary survivalistic <clears throat> mechanism inside of our brain we have these two cones of attention we can bring them together but the other one's always kind of scanning so for these people that he observed they almost couldn't regulate the the nervous system's ability to differentiate the importance of what was calling their attention um, and he also noted that people could be born with it or diseases or accidents could cause this so it wasn't necessarily something inherent to people um, and he went on to say that when born with it, a person, it becomes very evident at an early period in life and it has a bad effect in so much as it renders them incapable of attending with any consistency to any one object of education. So basically they just have a hard time at school, right? He started noticing that these people couldn't take their attention and bring it still on one object. Um, sometimes he said this was a result of nervous disorders and he went on to say in this disease of attention if we can <clears throat> if it can properly be called so every impression seems to agitate the person and gives him or her an unnatural degree of mental restlessness people walking up and down in a room a slight noise in the same a moving table a shutting door slightly excessive heat or cold too much light too little light all destroy the constant attention in such patients and as much as it is easily excited by every impression the barking of dogs an ill-tuned organ i like that one an ill-tuned organ that shit would bother the hell out of me or the scolding of women are sufficient to distract patients of this description to such a degree as almost approaches the nature of delirium it gives them vertigo a headache often excites such a degree of anger that borders on insanity when people are affected in this manner which they very frequently are they have a particular name for the state of their nerves which is expressed enough of, in their feelings they say they have the fidgets <laughs> and so basically this guy was the first person to diagnose uh the fidgets and also i mean just listening to that it makes me think that a lot of these people could have had <clears throat> anxiety or been suffering from trauma. Um, but it's kind of the first, the first consistent observation of people who had a hard time attending to one task for whatever reason. Uh, his work didn't really result in much except for went on to lead the way for a lot of other people, the way that science kind of uh, just passes the baton. Um, but a couple of important things. You notice that it could be brought about by an incident or an accident, or you could be born with it. And I really think that's true. I mean, I think that you can suffer a trauma and then have a hard time paying attention. If you are going through grief, you could have a hard time paying attention. Um, there are lots of things that I'll talk about later, but it kind of points to, it points to multiple causes, right? So inattention is a symptom of other things whether it's biological physiological emotional uh, trauma related anxiety depression uh, points that there are multiple causes for anxiety and so next we have a really fun gentleman with a nice little bit of alliteration 
Heinrich Hoffman, who lived from 1809 to 1894. Good old Heinrich was a German physician, uh, fairly well known, similarly on uh, lots of different boards of physicians. I won't list them all here, it's a little boring. But uh, he, he was noticing this in children, and he illustrated a book for his son when his son was three. And basically, the book is kind of like, uh, yeah, just a children's book, lots of lessons. But the poem goes on as such, and I'll try to read this, but it's a little challenging because of how it was written. But this, it's the story of Fidgety Phil. And on the first page, you have like a old two-dimensional drawing of a family sitting at dinner. There is a very disgruntled uh, maternal figure staring, gazing in a pretty disdainful fashion towards uh, her child. And there's a gentleman uh, raising his finger to his child. The child is giving a stern look back to the father while rocking in a chair at dinner. There's a nice table set there. They are all wearing appropriate garb for the time. Child has on some nice knickers and a nice little ruffled collared shirt. Uh, beautifully 19th century hairdos. <clears throat> and the poem goes on. Let me see if Philip can be a little gentleman. Let me see if he is able to sit still for once at a table. Thus spoke in earnest tone the father to his son. And the mother looked very grave to see Philip so misbehave. But Philip, he did not mind his father who was so kind. He wriggled and giggled, and then, I declare, swung backward and forward and tilted his chair. Just like any rocking horse, Philip, I am getting cross. See the naughty, restless child growing still more rude and wild till his chair falls over quite. Philip screams with all his might, catches at the cloth, but then that makes matters worse again. Down upon the ground they fall, glasses, bread, knives, forks, and all. How Mama did fret and frown when she saw them tumbling down, and Papa made such a face. Philip is in a sad disgrace. Where is Philip? Where is he? Fairly covered up, you see. Cloth and all are lying on him. He is pulled down all upon him. What a terrible to-do. Dishes, glasses snapped in two. Here a knife and there a fork. Philip, this is naughty work. Table also bare and ah. Poor Papa and poor Mama look quite cross and wonder how they shall make dinner now. So in this, uh, this, this children's story, you see Philip... Uh, you know, wiggling in his chair, rocking back and forth, much like I am on my uh, fidget stool that I bought myself, a nice little balance stool that I record this podcast on. But old Phillip's just sitting there rocking, same way I am while I'm talking. And uh, eventually he falls backwards and pulls the entire dinner down onto the floor and on top of himself. And at the end, you know, Parents' hands are in the air. Poor Philip's feet are just barely sticking out of this tangled mess of tablecloth. And you have the first parable of a child with ADHD or kinesthetic learning needs. Um, 
I think it's really funny, and I think this really points to this idea that Fidgety Phil, old Fidgety Phil, uh, has some kind of uh, almost like a, a moral, you know, like there's a moral component to this this type of misbehavior that, uh, you know, little little Fidgety Phil just wouldn't listen. He's just a little antagonist to his parents. He just won't, but won't behave and won't behave and then eventually ruins dinner, which, you know, in 1893 was a big deal, you know. Not a lot of food going around and so we have the first uh, yeah the first child story about a child with ADHD and then around the same time there was a, a gentleman named Sir George Fred Frederick Still uh, another one in the Royal College of Physicians uh, in London um, and this is when this kind of prevailing sentimentality really kind of took hold, I think, in the scientific, psychological, and uh, pediatric community. <clears throat> um, and Sir Frederick Still um, quoted, this is a quote, the particular physical conditions which are concerned with an abnormal defect of moral control in children. And so he was observing children who had a hard time attending to tasks, um, probably working with severely traumatized children. Um, you know, in orphanages, this is pre-treatment facilities, um, but they lacked moral control. Um, the control, um, so moral control was defined by him as the control of action in conformity with the idea of the good for all. So uh, basically, if you're rocking the boat, if you're stepping out of line, if you're thinking differently, you've got a moral issue and you should be treated. So. There were three fra three factors in uh, moral control: the relationship to the environment, so how well <clears throat> uh, you knew what was going on around you in class, moral consciousness, and volition. So volition is like you know the actions you take. Moral consciousness is you know set of virtues and values, and so the symptoms that he gave children. Uh, and this is this is pre ADHD label. These are all you know really early observations. You know, Sir George Frederick still died in 1941, so beginning of World War II. <clears throat> so the symptoms of this uh, this abnormal defect of moral control in children are passionate uh, passionateness. So if they are passionate. Um, I haven't met a child that isn't passionate about everything they do. Uh, there's this really great little video of a boy with a puppy, and he's just running around screaming, trying to show the puppy to everybody, this is the best day of my life. This is the cutest thing I've ever seen. He's very passionate about how cute that puppy is. Um, so being a child basically is a moral deficit so far as I can tell so far. Spitefulness or cruelty, um, so being mean to other children. So that the anger stuff that children with ADHD or, I mean, really anybody, you know, if you're, I was listening to a podcast and there's somebody with a doctorate talking about how agitated he can get when his concentration's broken. Like if he's working on a paper or something and somebody comes in, his first reaction just 
neurologically is agitation. Um, jealousy, lawlessness, so not following the rules, um, which is really hard for a lot of people just to sit in a chair in a classroom. Dishonesty, wanton mischievousness and destructiveness, um, shamelessness and immodesty, sexual immorality. I mean, I wonder how many kids running around sexually, being sexually immoral back then. <laughs> and viciousness. Uh, the keynote of these qualities is self-gratification, the immediate gratification of the self with re without regard to either the good of others or the larger or more remote good of self. So if any of you have ever been around children or tried to teach or been in a school or had children, it's like delaying gratification is <clears throat> something that it takes children a while to develop. There's the, the marshmallow test that's done where they'll take young children and put them in a room and they're like oh if you um, put this marshmallow in front of you you can eat it uh, but if you wait five minutes you'll get two and there's a certain age or developmental stage where children will start uh, initially and younger children will just eat the the marshmallow uh, the gendered nature of this study points that boys have less impulse control than girls um, but at some age, children start being able to show some self-control. But that's not something that children are inherently born with because children have to learn these things. Um, and so Sir George Frederick still really kind of put this moral stamp on people with attention deficits or uh, children exhibiting these qualities. Uh, moving on, there's another interesting, these are all gentlemen because of the patriarchy and the way the world works. I'm sure there were tons of women who knew more than these guys, but we didn't write any of that down because that's the way the world is. So in 1937, a gentleman named Charles Bradley um, was a psychiatrist and he was treating children in treatment facilities. So in hospitals, uh, orphans, traumatized children, and he was trying to treat um, and alleviate their headaches. And this is like one of those medical, <clears throat> medical accidents, scientific accidents that led to kind of where we are today. This is a pretty pivotal moment. He used Benzedrine, sulfate amphetamine, to alleviate headaches in children with depression, anxiety, probably PTSD. Um, but noticed that the most striking change in the behavior occurred in the school activities for many of these patients. They, they appeared, there appeared a definite drive to accomplish as much as possible. 15 of the 30 children responded to Benzedrine by becoming distinctly subdued in their emotional response. Um, and clinically, this is 1937, clinically there was an improvement from the social viewpoint. So children started, uh, you know, symptoms of depression, anxiety started lessening, and they started to produce more work. They started to focus better, which, I mean, come on. We're all adults here. Anybody who's done cocaine or Adderall recreationally, like, you focus on whatever you're doing. Um, I mean, you can focus on the dumbest conversation for, like, two hours if you're on cocaine. 
Um, it's, it's just kind of a natural side effect of amphetamines is hyperfocus. And so this is kind of like the, the, the watershed moment in looking at biological solutions, right? Like using drugs to treat, uh, to treat attention. Um, and this is really when the conceptualization of misbehavior started, you know, with Still and then uh, Bradley. But the 19th and 20th century, um, you know, a good kid was self-regulated, followed orderly social relationships, showed restraints. There was really this paradigm of like a good kid, bad kid, you know, so kind of like fidgety Phil. Fidgety Phil's a bad kid. And then, uh, you know, productive Polly's a good kid. And so a bad kid, you know, had difficulty doing schoolwork, failure to obey authority, which we all know now is like there can be a, a, a litany of root causes for these symptoms. And so much of what we've done historically is treat the symptoms and not the causes. Um, but there was like this combination of biological and physiological approaches. So treating some people with medicine for the first time, but then also using behavioral supports. Um, but also they were just doing random willy-nilly mid-20th century shit. They were using shock treatment. They were using, right, like I already said, speed. They were taking blood tests, doing physical exams. Um, <clears throat> but these, these kids in his school were inattentive, restless, rambunctious, and uh, pathologized as being selfish, right? Like, uh, so interestingly enough, the Benjadrine went on to, like, be studied a little bit, you know, um, and they found that there was about a 50%, 50% of the students given it, half of them were subdued, placid, had a sense of well-being, they quit isolating, they were more productive, they fit into society better, um, probably had a better sense of self, but the other half of the students, this is the concerning piece, were overstimulated, agitated, um, and showed kind of the negative side effects that go along with stimulants. Um, but this really opened up the research. This was kind of the watershed moment for using drugs to calm the effect of depression, anxiety, ADHD. Um, but they also noted, this is back and they've known this forever, since 1937, that the drugs only provided a temporary change. Um, that in a longitudinal study, students' behaviors would come back or they would start showing other mental health issues as a result of a, being a side effect from being on the speed. And that brings us to the invention of Ritalin. Uh, so picking up where Bradley left off, Leonardo Panzion, Panzun, uh, over in Switzerland, uh, first synthesized in 1944, I'm not even going to try to say it, Ritalin, uh, methylphenidate, uh, that basically, real quickly, just like it works by suppressing certain dopamine receptors, it, uh, it works in how your synapses connect, uh, <clears throat> communicate with each other in your brain. In 1955, this was approved in the U.S., and old Leonardo named Ritalin after his wife, Rita. Old Rita. 
This is something none of us with ADHD ever knew that old Rita was why I was taking Ritalin and it wasn't called something else like tear panic death sentence. <laughs> um, that was my experience with Ritalin. It didn't really do. I had a lot of horrible side effects as a child and as an adult when I tried to take amphetamines to help me focus. But Leonandro noticed that, you know, kind of the, if we rewind back, he's sitting there messing around with this uh, methylphenidate. And he's like, he gave some to his wife and she said that her tennis game got better. And so he was really intrigued. Why, you know, why could she focus on the ball more? And he kept working on it. And that's, he named it after her. And that's why it's called Ritalin. Um, it was initially prescribed for depressed or schizophrenic or psychotic patients, people, or people recovering from lobotomies. Um, is that something we used to do? It was really funny. I was looking through all these old ads from the early 50s for Ritalin and it had all these pictures of like really of elderly women. They were definitely like they had their demographic and it was marketed to oldsters, quote unquote, oldsters or troublesome, miserable old people. And I had this picture of this really sad woman peeling potatoes and it said the tagline was relieves chronic fatigue that depresses and mild depression that fatigues. Um, who doesn't want that? It's like, I mean, I drink coffee every day. Um, I want something that relieves chronic fatigue, especially after the pandemic. It's definitely depressed me and mild depression. I mean, it's just Ritalin just sounds like a wonder drug. Um, in 1961, the USDA approved Ritalin for hyperactive children. And this is where it gets really interesting. The U.S. approved Ritalin because the Soviets launched Sputnik. So in the 50s, right, there's the space race, you know, who's going to get to the moon first, who's going to launch a monkey into space first. And so the Soviets beat us in a way, right, like launched Sputnik. And then there was this just widespread national panic, right, like the Soviets are so much more technologically advanced, they're better at math and science and education. And so there was this huge national, like, freak out. Um, there was a, a huge increase in diagnosis, diagnosis and prescription of Ritalin around this time. And there was this huge refocusing nationally on academics. And they actually passed uh, the National Defense Education Act to beat the Soviets. Um, and the goals of the National Defense Education Act were to uh, lower dropout rates, focus on science, math, and English. This is where we got guidance counselors from. Fun side note, uh, your guidance counselors have jobs because the Russians launched Sputnik. Um, and these were the first clinical diagnosis and where the term ADHD came about. Um, the first clinical trial with Ritalin uh, was in a treatment facility. So I've mentioned before in the podcast, a treatment facility is where students who can't succeed in schools or have too much trauma or behavioral issues or unsafe to themselves or others go. Um, but in the study, 70% of the side effects were worrying enough to stop the trial. So they shut down the trial because the kids were having such adverse 
side effects, right? Like paranoia, delusion, mania, depression. Um, <clears throat> but this was a huge shift, right? To start studying intensely a biological approach to psychiatry. Um, and you know what? I don't know. This could be a hot take. This could be a random connection. But, you know, maybe we got people to the moon because down in Texas, you know, at NASA, everyone was just snorting Ritalin. <laughs> just a room full of scientists hopped up on speed trying to get Neil Armstrong into space. Buzz Aldrin, all those guys. I wonder I wonder if all those guys were on Ritalin. Huh. <clears throat> But moving on, uh, in the 70s, uh, Ritalin actually started to become quite a bit of a drug problem, kind of like we have the opiate crisis right now. The history of pharmaceutical problems in this country is just, it's insane. But so in 1971, Seattle declared that Ritalin was its number one drug problem. Uh, people were getting it on the black market. Um, they were injecting it. And also in 1971, it was banned in Switzerland. So the country where the guy discovered it and first synthesized it banned it in 1971. Um, and then moving on, between the 80s and 1995, um, prescriptions for Ritalin increased from 400,000 in 1980, or diagnosis for ADHD increased from 400,000 in 1980 to 2.6 million in 1995. That's pretty staggering. That's like uh, five times as many people. Um, and so that's kind of, that's where I got into it, you know? I mean, it was mid-80s, it was in third grade. Teachers kept finding me wandering around other classrooms. Uh, couldn't sit still in a chair. Uh, and so I, I uh, in the 1980s, I, I went through an intense round of... Uh, of diagnosis. I remember having to go to uh, children's hospital and they put me on Ritalin in third grade. And so that's about when I started getting high um, all the way back in the 80s. Um, but we'll leave the anecdotes out for now. And so, yeah, and now we have uh, we have Adderall, we have Vyvanse, we have Concerta. There are just so many things being used for attention because we're all having a bit of trouble focusing on shit. So as we move on, you know, Ritalin has been continued to be studied, continued to be looked at, and the side effects are pretty staggering. The side effects are anxiety, agitation, depression, difficulty sleeping, euphoria, irritability, loss of appetite, aggression, mania, panic attacks. Um, and also they, they found in the 90s, they did a study and they found that uh, taking Ritalin for four months as a child would alter the white matter in your brain. What's the white matter, Colby? Well, Good thing you asked. Uh, white matter is the tissue through which messages pass between different areas of gray matter within the central nervous system. White matter is white because of fatty substance, myelin that surrounds the nerve fibers, the axons. So basically, the reason why they tell you to take fatty acids and uh, omega-3s is your your body can't produce fat, but it need, like basically your brain's just all fat. 
Um, and so all of the casings for your synapses, neurons, the whole thing is basically just fat. But your body can't produce fat. Your body doesn't make fat. You have to take fat in. So like olive oil, butter, meats. Um, <clears throat> you know, that's why they say fish oils are so good for your brains. Um, so Ritalin altered the white matter. So the ability of your brain to actually make other connections, do other things. And that kind of, that's kind of the long and short history of ADHD. It brings us up to present, right? So now we, uh, I mean, you can't meet anybody. If I meet a millennial, or, I mean, if, fuck, it's anybody. If I meet so many people, I was, I was talking about this at the dog park this morning with a couple people and just saying I was researching it, that I spent a lot of time on it and both of the people I was talking to were like, oh, my ADHD is like this. Oh, my ADHD is like that. So I think we're the reason why I want to do this series is partially personal so I can flush out and uh, explore some of my experiences, but also because I think there's so many of us who are having a hard time attending to things right now. And attention is such a complex topic. You know, it's not it's not clear cut, you know. It's, you know, social emotional. It's, you know, the pen, there's the pandemic and how that influenced our social emotional health. Um, there are just so many interesting things that, you know, currently there's a lot of work being done to examine the physiological states that induce attention without you know, behavioral approaches, right, such as breathing techniques, um, you know, rest, diet, um, you know, we all take, I mean, if you drink coffee, you're taking something to help stimulate your brain to focus. You're trying to get into a kind of a, not agitated, you're trying to get into a slightly altered state Caffeine affects your brain chemistry <clears throat> where you can focus a little bit more. You know, if you have a difficult task, you might pour a cup of coffee. You know, I, I make a cup of coffee before each one of these episodes, so my brain's firing, so I got a little bit more to say. And so I think that there's still so much stigma, self pathologization, you know, like self diagnosis. Um, and I'm not like looking to debunk anybody's sense of self. I just think that if we're all having a hard time paying attention, maybe something else is going on. You know, it's like I know that when I was diagnosed with ADHD, that it had a lot of this, the moral labeling, right? Like I remember thinking that I was a bad kid. And it wasn't just because, you know, I was a little child and I was seeing the world through a kid's mind and kid's eyes and, you know, everything's a little bit more emotionally intense and you think that you're the cause of everything when you're a kid. But there was a lot of labeling that my teachers gave me. Um, and having taught, you know, like I understand it, it's really challenging to have a child in your class that can't focus or is having a hard time. Uh, but what we know now in education is there's a lot of supports and behavioral supports that you can give people to help them focus. Like, I remember in high school, 
Um, I'd taken myself off Ritalin and, you know, I was struggling. My parents were getting divorced. I was a teenager. There's a lot going on. But if I needed to focus or read something, it really helped me to have my hood up. And in the school, I was labeled like a thug or a punk or a dirt or a grit or whatever you want to call it because I wanted to wear my hood in the building. Well, we've come to find out that uh, mental attention follows visit, visual attention for sighted people. And so having blinders up or a hood can really help people focus because it's limiting their visual and auditory field and creating kind of like a cone of focus, right? So I talked about the, yeah, you have these cones. And so there was still this just like kind of horrific pathologization. And I, I it was out of ignorance, right? I don't think it was like, it was just conditioning and the society and the culture in which I grew up in. Um, but so many of those things, I think, those social attributes to attention are starting to lighten up, but the, the symptoms persist. You know, we're having a hard time focusing. We have more stuff asking for our attention, whether it's notifications on our phones or our apps. Um, and I just think it's a, a worthwhile talk to have, you know, for me, learning behavioral supports as I've gotten older, learning how to structure my life, learning about diet and sleep, learning about, uh, you know, it really helps me, you know, some students really need to have music, helps them focus. Like if you want me to do math, this is no joke. I can focus on math forever if I'm stoned and I'm listening to music. I'd be happy to solve trigonometry problems all day long. But I need those circumstances. So what we're going to get into, now that we've talked a bit about the history, is we're going to get into some of the stuff that we're learning now. Uh, I'm going to tell you my story, which I've, I've started a little bit here. But I just, I find it really interesting that, and hopeful that we're starting to get rid of this moral stamp about people, and we're starting to be able to look at the root causes and not the symptoms. We're not just treating the symptoms, you know, because anxiety can manifest symptomatically like ADHD, depression can manifest symptomatically like ADHD, PTSD can manifest symptomatically like ADHD. Uh, there's just so many things like we've learned about learning styles. And so there's a lot that has changed, but there's also a lot of this stuff that still remains. You know, a lot of people feel ashamed have to take a medicine to help them get the behavioral supports in place and I think lifting those stigmas is hugely important um, you know I realized pretty clearly when I was getting my master's um, you know I was working a job I was student teaching I was taking classes and around that time I was like oh I'm having a hard time focusing so I went to my doctor and I said hey what do you got on the market what's good What's, what's the new shit? I have this diagnosis. Look, here it is from third grade. And he was like, oh, there's Vyvanse. There's this new one. You know, and kind of take it as needed. And I tell you what, I took that thing as I needed. And I kicked ass for about two years. Uh, got a 4.0 in my master's program. Got written up in the newspaper. I was in the news. I got a immediate teaching placement out of school. I wrote a <clears throat> master's thesis that went on to get published. I paid my rent, I worked a job, I student taught, 
Uh, I probably dated, don't really remember, but I probably did that too. And you know what? I was taking Vyvanse the whole time, and one thing, right, like I have all those accolades, but inside of that were like horrible bouts of anxiety, like paranoid delusions, um, and just, you know, side effects of medication that I don't think set me up for long-term success, and it wasn't until I started teaching in high schools and started noticing how these symptoms of other mental health issues, right, like anxiety or depression, how they look a lot like ADHD, but how they're much different than the 10% that are clinically diagnosable. Um, and how some of those other things can just, small little behavioral tweaks can really help you, you know? Like I have no problem without drugs focusing on something and not the kind of focusing, not the hyper-focusing that you hear about with ADHD where it's like, I'm really into that, it's all I'm gonna do. Uh, like I could sit and read uh, medical articles, articles on ADHD for two days in a row. And it wasn't because I was obsessed, you know? I don't feel particularly passionate about like changing the world and people's understanding of ADHD. I just was like, oh, this is a good topic, let's do it. I have work to do, I have a podcast to do, let's uh, dive into this. So with some <clears throat> pretty basic behavioral tweaks, I've been able to learn how to focus and with the help of some meditation, some breathing, and some stuff I'll get into in the next episode. So I hope you enjoyed this uh, really historical account of ADHD. We gotta meet Fidgety Phil, we gotta meet Rita and her delightful tennis game. We uh, learned about the old slang for disgruntled old people called oldsters, I mean, I think I want to reclaim that. When I get old, I want people to call me an oldster. Let's reclaim that, old people. Let's get that one back. I hope you enjoyed this. This was a really fun one to uh, look into, and it was fun to see that people have been talking about this since 1763, and uh, while the diagnosis and the label didn't come around until later, that uh, they've been trying to figure out how to get us to be good little producers to sit in our chair forever. You know, there's there's definitely the... The one thing I think I missed that I do want to talk about is like that around the 50s, right? <clears throat> there was, you know, the Industrial Revolution <clears throat> really changed the way we look at this. Um, you know, we needed students, or we thought, right? And I think we did, right? With the wars that were going on, uh, I mean, coming out of the Great Depression, you know, nationally, we didn't want to go back to that place. And so it was really important to create students who could sit in chairs, follow protocols, be trained, highly focused producers. And I think that was a super important uh, developmental <clears throat> milestone. Like we, we, we needed to change our education system at the time. Um, but that, that way of seeing the world isn't necessarily and then the world's different you know we don't work in factories we don't have a working or middle class anymore and we're still using a lot of these kind of archaic ideas to frame how we educate people you know i mean look at if you need to see what offices look like go go 
Google shared working spaces. They have bouncy balls, they have workout centers. There's so many different ways that people have learned to use their bodies and move and also stay productive. We just have new ways of looking at this. And I just think it's really fascinating, this history of the drug that I started taking in third grade. Uh, and now, I mean, all these years later, it's like a $24 billion industry. The pharmaceutical industry uh, for ADHD meds is, it's huge. And so if there's money to be made, they're going to keep telling us we have a problem. And if we want to get free from some of these misunderstandings, you know, a little education. So that's what we're doing here. Just a little education. We'll sit down, chat. I hope you enjoyed this. I hope this was uh, entertaining. I don't do a lot of historical accounts of things on this podcast, but uh, I, I think this one will set us up nicely for the next two podcasts on attention. So I love you all so much. I hope you have just a lovely, lovely day. This is a listener-supported, crowdfunded podcast. So if, if, if you got something from this, you want to head over to Patreon. You know, if you buy me a cup of coffee or a pint, uh, head over to Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash turning of the bones. Uh, yeah, and just leave something. Keeps keeps me motivated, keeps some money coming in, uh, keeps this free of advertisers. And, uh, you know, other people who can't listen <clears throat> or can't pay, uh, don't worry about it. Just keep listening. I'm going to keep doing it. If you feel called to, if you want to support the podcast, please head over to Patreon. Share it on Instagram, YouTube, uh, not YouTube, share it on Instagram, iTunes, leave a review, like, follow, subscribe, all that good stuff. Uh, and I appreciate you. Fidgety, 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 fill, fidgety, 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 fill, fidgety, 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 fill. It's a really fun thing to say. I hope you guys have a lovely day. Have fun fidgeting. Take a walk. Do some push-ups. Drink some water. Take care of each other. Pet an animal. Hug a loved one. Take care of yourselves. Be well. Turning of the bones. Bye now.